Here we are with another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith and the science and practice of medicine. In this show, we're going to have a guest from Northeast Pennsylvania, Dr. Greg Burke. He is the Chief Patient Experience Officer. How many of those have you met in your life? At Geisinger Medical Center. He's also the co-chairman of the Catholic Medical Association Ethics Committee and still a practicing internist. But first, we've got some medical news items, courtesy of Chris. I'm going to take uh, my life in my own hands, Tom, and talk about flu shots. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I did this on my website on my Facebook page last flu season, and I was almost run out of town. So uh, either I haven't learned anything or I've learned a lot. But, but gonna... That should be really innocuous. <laughs> or is it inoculating oh. or inoculative? I don't know. Moving right along. <laughs> Please. Uh, this comes, you know, we're, we're in the midst of the very beginning, I should say, of a flu season. And this is from a, a study that was recently published from data that the CDC collected in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, specifically about pregnant women and flu shots, uh, looking at 40% less likely to be hospitalized with the flu if a pregnant woman gets a flu shot. Sounds now, like it's worth it to me. It is. I mean, we choose I choose those words carefully. doesn't mean that you won't necessarily get the flu, right. which is a common complaint I hear people say, well, my buddy got the flu shot and he still got the flu. Two things. One is it may not have actually been the flu. It may have just been a <laughs> flu-like illness. And two, he may not have gotten nearly as sick. Well, here we have some data that really supports that. The problem, or one of the problems with pregnant women and the flu, is they're much more likely to be hospitalized because they get so much sicker than the non-pregnant person And is that because their immune system is not acting as strong so that it treats the baby well? Yeah, I'm not sure that we know. It's just uh, the disease tends to hit them harder. They're less tolerant of the dehydration Uh uh, that can come. They're more likely to get respiratory problems. But this study was really very important and included medical records looking at 2 million pregnant women, Canada, Australia, the U.S., and Israel, between 2010 and 2016. And again, uh, 40% less likely for them to be hospitalized if they got a flu shot. Okay, Chris, I am naive, I'm ignorant, and I'm a male. Why would people on your Facebook page be up in arms about the flu shot? You know, it was interesting. I got a lot of really uh, sort of uh, hate responses saying, you're advocating something that's never been proven to be safe. Um, and a lot of a lot of claims like this, I, I couldn't respond to all of them. That just simply uh, isn't true. Uh, you, you know, everything has risks. You and I driving to the studio tonight yes. has risks. We as humans make very compli- complicated uh, risk relative calculations all of the time. In fact, we do it in our subconscious without even considering it. But we have to look at the practical side. I mean, a pregnant woman, one of the most important things she can do for her baby is to stay healthy. Yes. And that is not to get the flu. But some more interesting news about the flu. Uh, one thing to remember is you're also vaccinating the baby so that by getting a flu shot, the pregnant woman is passively immunizing her child during those first couple of months before the child can get Uh, a vaccine. But if we look specifically to the great state of Indiana, just for instance, according to the State Department of Health and the CDC, uh, in our 2017-2018 season, now we're beginning our 2018-2019 season, last flu season, we saw a tripling of the number of Indiana deaths from the flu. It was 304 deaths, up from 103 in the previous season. Is that because the virus was mutating so rapidly last year it was and a, the vaccine yeah. didn't really fit it well. Yeah, health department and CDC officials point out that the uh, the severity of the flu virus tends to go in four to five year cycles. Ah. Uh, this was a particularly bad flu and the H1N1 wasn't nearly as bad as it had been in the past. And this year's vaccine was not as effective in some years uh, as some of the other strains that were okay. more serious. But we saw a tripling of the number of deaths 226 were of people age 65 and older. And what popped into my mind was, you, you know, if there was a an accident that happened in a nursing home and 265 grandparents were killed, wow. 
imagine the coverage in the media and the uproar among yes. Hoosiers uh, that so many people had died senselessly. Well, we don't know that every one of those 265 grandparents wouldn't have died had they gotten their flu shot. But we know that every one of them were infected with the flu. And that means by you not getting the flu shot, you may be infecting someone's grandparent, and that person is likely to die. So herd immunity is important to protect the weakest in the, quote, herd. Yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, according to the New York Times, uh, there were more than 80,000 American deaths nationwide uh, in last year's flu season, 90% of those grandparents above the age of 65. So uh, I, I know that I will infuriate some of our listeners, um, but we just can't disregard the science here. You know, on the day that we're uh, taping this, I just received my flu shot at work today from one of my lovely nurses. And out in my vehicle, in the parking lot, in a little freezer bag, are eight doses for the rest of my family at home. Yeah, I think a lot of times we don't realize by not vaccinating, uh, we're putting someone else at risk uh, because we tend to be a little narcissistic as humans, don't we? But it's really not so much about our own health as it is the health of the people around us, particularly if you're around people that are at-risk populations like pregnant women, the elderly, the very young, those with underlying respiratory illnesses and the like. If you just turned in, you're listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, where we are going through some medical news items with Chris Stroud. Now, I'm going to move on to the health tip of the day. Ooh, I like those. And this is one of my favorite (laughs) topics to discuss. It's something I spend a lot of time talking about, and I had the chance to travel around the country talking about it, and that is... The menstrual cycle. Well, close. (laughs) In this case, the absence of the menstrual cycle, but VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean section. How did you get to be an expert in this area? You know, not it's not a well thought out plan. It's just something that uh, that I feel passionately about, as as do many of the physicians that I'm privileged to practice with. But cesarean section, the most common. Uh, surgery performed in the world. Uh, And many women who've had a cesarean section want to have a vaginal birth afterwards. And in 2010, the NIH, or the National Institutes for Health, convened a panel and looked at the safety and the outcomes of so-called TOLAC, or trial of labor after cesarean, and VBAC, or vaginal birth after cesarean, and factors associated with success. And it recognized that TOLAC was a reasonable option for most if not all women who've had one prior cesarean section, Ah. and in many cases, women that have had more than one cesarean section. There were a couple of noteworthy bullets from the NIH panel. One of them, successful VBAC is associated with fewer complications than having an elective repeat C-section. Most people don't appreciate that. The other thing to remember is there is no no no-risk alternative. If you're pregnant, you either have to have a repeat C-section or a vaginal birth after a C-section. There's no other exit, right? There's no third rail. (laughs) Uh, VBAC is particularly important, as many of our Catholic listeners may be inclined, I hope, to have a large family. Having a VBAC after that first C-section may make it so that you can have vaginal births the rest of your obstetrical career. If you have that second C-section, and particularly that third one, it may mean that you're condemning yourself to C-sections the rest of your reproductive life. So what's the rationale for repeat C-sections? There's a perception that it's safer than a VBAC. Uh, And in the overwhelming majority of cases, that just isn't true. It's either as risky, if you want to take the negative, or equally safe. But when you think of all of the other factors, uh, in many cases, the VBAC is the better way to go. Now, is it because it's thought that the uterus is going to be weaker because it has been sutured? And, And that is the issue. If someone says to me, could I have a catastrophic outcome from trying to achieve a VBAC? The answer is categorically, yes, you could. The trouble is most people stop the conversation right there. Yes. What should come next is, well, what's the relative risk of catastrophe if I have a repeat C-section? Oh, that's another whole story altogether. As we said, there's no no-risk option. You have risk on either side of that equation. A couple of other takeaways from the NIH panel. The probability of success decreases if your labor needs to be induced. The probability decreases if your pregnancy goes well beyond its due date. 
And twins, I know something you're familiar with, <laughs> does not decrease the chance of success. Ah, so I good. have what I call four takeaways for VBAC success. Number one, find a VBAC-friendly provider. Not just somebody who says they're friendly, but someone who does VBACs all of the time and feels passionately How about do you it. find that person? Uh, you've got to do some research. Facebook, mom's groups, a uh, good place to start, but you've got to do some digging. Number two, aggressive education. Fear is the greatest enemy of a successful labor, the greatest tool to fight fear, knowledge. Two websites I just really love. One is called vbackfacts.com, and the other is called birthmatters.com. Two great resources for husbands and wives thinking about VBAC. Point number three, aggressive fitness. I know you're a fitness buff, Tom, so you'd be a great VBAC candidate. Well, great. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell Sally. (laughs) Anything that improves cardiovascular fitness and particularly lower lower extremity uh, flexibility. And then number four takeaway, avoid induction of labor if at all possible. So there you have it. There's our news and our tip of the day from Dr. Doctor. And that is a wonderful segue into my medical trivia question of the day. Which I knew people were thinking that already. I, I, I wish s- that Stroud guy would stop talking so we could hear the medical trivia question. No, no, no. It's, it's like in 1848, there was a Hungarian obstetrician <laughs> named Ignaz Semmelweis. Gesundheit. You're welcome. Who worked in Vienna, Austria at the time. And at that time, women were deathly afraid of death after childbirth, not from childbirth, but after childbirth because of infections with something called childbed fever. And there were two different uh, units, two different wards where these women were. And he noticed that on one of the wards, the death rate was about 20%. And, the, and on the other ward, it was about 6%. And he noticed the only difference was that medical students were going into one ward where there was a higher rate and midwives only were in the one where there was a lower rate. Well, he came to think that the medical students had something on them that they were carrying in. And so what he did is ask the medical students to start washing their hands in a solution of lime between patients. 90% reduction in fatalities. I mean, women were so afraid that they would have their children in the street so that they would not end up in the ward with the medical students. So. The question is, in response to this breakthrough in patient care of reducing mortality, did his medical colleagues do A, B, C, or D? A, nominated him for the first Nobel Prize in medicine. B, made him chief of obstetrics in Vienna at the tender age of 29. C, ridiculed him saying that it was preposterous that upper-class men like physicians should be thought to have dirty hands that needed washing. Or D, instituted hand-washing between patients and maternity wards, thus ushering in the era of antiseptic care in medicine. Stay tuned. In, in segment four, we'll have the answer, but we'll be back with our guest of the day after this break. Welcome back to the segment of the show when we introduce and start the interview with our guest. Our guest today is from Northeast Pennsylvania. His name is Dr. Greg Burke. Uh, Greg is the chief patient experience officer at Geisinger Health in Danville, Pennsylvania, and the surrounding area because they have a lot of satellites. He's also a general internist who still sees patients, and he is the co-chairman of the Catholic Medical Association Ethics Committee. I recently spent some time with Greg in Dallas, Texas, at our national meeting, and the topic of tonight's show came up, and that is, His hospital system is the first one in the country to refund patients for unsatisfactory care. Greg, thanks for being with Dr. Doctor. It's great to be here, Tom. Okay. To reveal a little bit of my nerdness, I'm going to start by saying that in Star Trek's series, Deep Space Nine, viewers learn about an unusual-looking species called the Ferengi, who are commerce-oriented and have 285 rules of acquisition. Tom, you've revealed more than just a little bit of your nerdiness. (laughs) And the number one rule of acquisition is this. You can tell they're very business-minded. Once you have their money, you never give it back. So, Greg, you obviously don't believe in the Ferengi rules of acquisition, do you? Uh, No. (laughs) Not that Star Trek is a fantasy show, in case you didn't know that, Tom. Um, but actually, it, it, may, <laughs> it may not be a fantasy in terms of that rule. I would say for healthcare for over 100 years, that idea of giving your money back 
after you paid it to a healthcare system through insurance or a copay, pretty much was the rule. Okay. Um, so maybe Star Trek had it right. Um, not that they had it right in the ethical sense, but they may have had it right in a functional sense. Yeah. And, and you know what? At the end of the series, in the very last episode, they install a new Grand Nagus over the whole Ferengi Alliance, and they totally change the way <laughs> they do things. So you are like Rom, the new Grand Nagus of the Ferengi Alliance. To all of our listeners, I just I just want to apologize. Um, so I'll, I'll let your wife know she can refer to you as Grand Negus Rob. Greg. So Greg, moving right along, uh, I, I grew up working for a company that's had some negative publicity recently, Sears Roebuck yeah. and Company. My dad worked for them for almost 40 years. I worked for them in college, and right on the door, Sears Roebuck and Company, satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Made perfect sense for a retailer, but you've got to you've got to help us understand how did this idea come up for you and a health system. Sure, I'll give you a little bit of background. I think that'll make help make more sense of the whole process. So, probably about ten years ago, our health system did another innovative thing. They they started a, a program called Proven Care, and the concept was this: that if you had a major uh, intervention, say cardiac surgery, open heart surgery. We knew that there were best practices that had proven benefit in terms of reducing complication rates, of having the best possible outcome, reducing mortality. And uh, what we said to companies like Sears, say, uh, or Walmart, or any of these large companies, if you send your patient to us for bypass surgery, we will set a price that no matter what happens, that is a set price. And if there are complications related to our care, you will not pay. You won't pay a dime more. The way this would work, however, is that we're going to ensure that our surgeons, all in agreement, do the best practice. So they looked at cardiac surgery. They found 40 best practices, put it into our computer system, and requested that 100% of the time, those best practices would be applied. And it could be, you know, giving the right medicine to prevent a blood clot, or the antibiotic prior to surgery, or ambulating the patient early. With that, they found that our already fairly good mortality rate actually declined. There was less complications, and the care was actually cheaper, actually cost less. The companies liked it because they had no uncertainty about the price they would have to pay for, the, for, their, for their employees' uh, procedure. Mm. We called that proven care. Got a yeah. lot of attention. It's now expanded to a whole bunch of other surgeries. Now, Greg... Yeah, uh, this sounds a little bit like what the government was trying to do with accountable care organizations where you pay one fee and that has to cover everything. Is this a form of self-administered or self-inflicted accountable care? I think you're actually right, Tom. I never made that direct connection, but I think you were right. I think our health system, Geisinger, was, was sort of ahead of the curve with that sort of thinking. And we threw a lot of effort into this. It was a front page, a New York Times story when it came out. Uh, and it's now expanded to other surgeries and even outpatient uh, medical uh, management issues. Where proven experience comes in, when I assumed the role, oh gosh, maybe about four years ago as chief patient experience officer, uh, in the course of meeting with our, our leadership team and the team that works with patient experience, the question came up, uh, or the concept came up, what if we found what the best practices are in patient experience? And experience, I mean, how we treat our patients with hospitality, how do we communicate with them, how do we show compassion to them? Uh, and so we knew there were certain things out there that, we, that patients and families want to happen. They want to have their family member rounded on every hour by a nurse. <clears throat> they want their doctors to speak, you know, professionally and frequently. They want their health care providers and nurses to be dressed professionally. They want the rooms to be quiet. They want the food to be warm. Uh, they want a lot of things that all make sense. And so that was the concept of proven experience, is why don't we find a way for, you know, implementing a program in that every one of these best practices would be followed and we would track it uh, much like we did with proven care. So I hope you can see that connection of the concept from proven care to proven experience, still yes. scientifically based. Now, the, an underlying yeah. question I have is, you are doing this now in medicine, but before you guys did this, you know, most service-centered organizations or lawyers, engineers, teachers, medicine, they didn't do things like this. Businesses have done them. Why do you think that 
organizations like medicine and law have not done this before? I think because it's always been felt, particularly with professions, that you can't guarantee a particular outcome. For instance, in medicine, biology is, is too diverse. Complications occur. It's a highly specialized field. And only um, you know, a specialist of that field, whether it's a lawyer or a doctor, practicing their craft can, can give the best care. And any guarantee about outcome is, is, is certainly something that can't be guaranteed or put into words. And um, so I think that was, that was the initial concern from a lot of folks about this. How can you put a guarantee in medicine? Medicine is, is not predictable. And, how to, and I, dare I say this, how do patients even know that they're getting good care? Or appropriate Ooh, care or the best experience. A little bit of, now I'll be honest with a little bit of arrogance to that question, though, isn't there? Yeah. How would a patient know that they're getting good care? So it's a little bit like uh, father knows best or doctor knows best. But I could also see it from the other perspective, Greg. They might assume they're getting good care because they're being treated kindly, but they could still be getting substandard medical care. So I think you could look at that question from both perspectives, arrogance or naivety. Or you could say, too, that it, it, the burden is on the provider of care to make them mm-hmm. understand what good care is and therefore make them happy with that good care, in a sense, right? That's a, that's a great point. In fact, I will tell you that providers of health care on the other side have been very um, cynical sometimes about this idea of patient experience, saying exactly what you're saying. You know, health care is very complex. It has a lot of moving parts. Outcomes can't be guaranteed. Quality is, you know, often in the, be- the not the, the eye of the beholder, the one who's receiving the care, but the one who's delivering it. They're the experts to know whether the treatment was correct or the outcome was expected. Uh, so you'll see sometimes, um, you know, physicians, healthcare administrators, somewhat cynical about patient experiences, not, a, you know, that they think that this is interfering perhaps with safety and quality and all the other outcomes that they're trying to achieve. I'll be honest with you. I think that's bunk. I think, (laughs) uh, not to be frank with you, but I think patients know when they're getting good care. And why can't we do both? If I have a loved one and you have a loved one, would you not want them to have competent, safe, effective therapy and care by a competent clinician? Uh, But wouldn't you also want it to be wrapped in hospitality, kindness, empathy, and love? Yes. Who wouldn't want that? So I, I've kind of pushed back. I knew, uh, for instance, when the concept first came out in the newspapers, there were editorials from you know, fairly intelligent people, college professors, questioning this program as dangerous, stupid, uh, dumbfounded, uh, for these reasons. That, you know, and at, at, the end, at the end of the day, the message was patients really probably don't know if they're getting good care because they may have to suffer the side effects of chemotherapy, they may not understand the complexity of the surgery they underwent, or even that you know, the emergency room is overcrowded because there's a flu outbreak, and that's why they had to wait for 10 hours. I just think that's bunk. So despite um, these concerns and fears, that. you went ahead. Absolutely. That was a decision we made, and I'll, I'll tell you how it happened. I, we had a new CEO. Uh, his name is David Feinberg. He was the prior CEO at UCLA in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Very innovative thinker, forward thinker. In his first two weeks on the job, I presented the idea of proven experience. He thought about it briefly and then said the next word, which still was a little bit shocking. Well, then if they have a bad experience, they should get their money back. I don't know if he was thinking of Sears, but certainly the, <laughs> the concept was on his mind that if we're also in the hospitality business, which we are, let's be honest, there's health care, which part of it is about medical care and surgical intervention. But some of it is pure hospitality. It's keeping the, you know, the patient warm in bed. It's making sure the food is delivered on time. It's communicating changes in status. It's being kind and compassionate in the words that you use, updating the family frequently. These are hospitality issues. And I think Dr. Feinberg saw that and made the next connection with consumerism and medicine, which we can't deny exists, and said, we're going to step out of what has been expected all these decades and, and make a promise that nobody's ever heard in healthcare. If you have a bad experience, you should get your money back. But you know, it's interesting. I, I think it, certainly all that you said was true about these these things are hospitality. But I think mm-hmm. it's not too great a leap to say patients that are pleased, that are happy, that feel cared for, that feel some empathy and compassion, they do better. 
they're going to be more compliant. Oh, absolutely. With, yeah, they'll they'll follow instructions. They'll follow regimens. They'll they'll put up with mm-hmm. unnecessary but yet unavoidable side effects sometimes because of those things. So it really is you know it really is interlinked, isn't it? That's a great point. And I remember, you know, the early part of my presentations on this, when I would talk to physician leaders and physician staff, I would often show a slide that summarized a list of the medical studies that have made that exact point, that if you are satisfied with your care, if you like your provider or you like your physician, you tend to have better health outcomes. There's less anxiety. Mm. uh, There's better compliance and adherence with medications. There's even been studies that have looked at blood pressure control correlating better outcomes uh, with patient experience. There was only one study I was aware of that put a hiccup into that, but the vast majority of studies would argue otherwise. And um, we're now seeing some of the initial studies also associating quality outcomes and safety with patient experience. I think it's undeniable. It's very intuitive, I think. If you truly care about your patient's comfort and about their outcome and how they're experiencing the care and their family, you are going to be very conscious of safety and and make sure you're doing the right you know, the decisions to care for them and avoid harm. Uh, it, to me, it just makes common sense. Well, Greg, we're going to have to take a break. Uh, if you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Greg Burke from the Geisinger Health System on the Dr. Doctor Show and Redeemer Radio. We'll be right back with you after a brief break. We're back on Dr. Doctor interviewing Greg Burke, Chief Patient Experience Officer at Geisinger Health System based out of Danville, Pennsylvania, on their refund program for unhappy patients. Greg, you laid the groundwork for why you did what you did. Then you laid it out. You opened the doors. Patients could bring to you their problems. What happened? Well, as you might expect, um, they certainly told us where some of the problems were. We did see initial increase in complaints and initial increase for refunds. We expected that, and I think it was not a bad thing. Um, it also showed us where some of the warts were in our system, where some of the problem areas were, some of the sore points, the pain points, as you would, um, that we needed to work on. And some of them were, were pretty much uh, expected, communication skills. <laughs> um, that doesn't surprise you. Wait no. times, uh, access to our clinics. Uh, we learned how important these things were. We we learned that, um, you know, we could do a better job on a number of those issues about getting our patients in. We've heard about delays of care. Uh, but we also heard about bad behavior on, the, on a part of a small number of our clinicians and nurses that clearly were disappointing and actually required us to intervene. So that's a healthy thing, though. Yes, I mean, it is. Knowing where the problem uh, problems are is, is critical to to making an improvement. Now, before so, you did this program, yeah. you had let individual departments also refund money before you made the system wide. So you were already refunding some money. Did the amount that you refunded go up? Sure. Well, we initially started with a pilot, Tom. So we were uh, did this with a particular surgical patient population. We did it with those having back surgery and those getting gastric bypass surgery for, for significant obesity. And we piloted an app so they could actually request a refund on their phone, but they had to communicate what the problem was. We contacted them, and they were even allowed to pick the amount they thought would be a reasonable refund. Now, I, I need to make this point clear. The refund really is only out-of-pocket expenses related to charges from the hospital or the, the clinic. So it's a copay, it's coinsurance, it's deductible. We weren't covering compensation for lost work, and we were not getting into disagreements on medical outcomes, care, malpractice. This is, was not what it was part of. It was purely on the experience of the care, on those issues of hospitality and communication. And so we learned. We learned where some of the, the weak points in the system were. Uh, we learned that the vast majority of our patients who requested refund were honest. Uh, we did have a couple surprises, you know, and, and you can debate this. We had one patient ask for a refund because the, the physician yawned during the examination. We gave the money back to the patient. We said, okay, um, if that's what you think uh, really brought the experience down, that's what we're going to do. So, but the vast majority of the complaints, if we listened to them, I thought were, you know, we thought were valid. One of the more difficult parts is just separating complaints about experience from outcomes in medical care. So if we saw a case where they were concerned that the patient experienced a surgical complication 
or a diagnosis was missed or was an error made, we refer that on to risk management for the appropriate review. Um, that's not what the refund was really meant to, to address. So it's really about falling down in what you might call hospitality. Hospitality, absolutely, and that's a very broad category. For some, it could be as simple as how quiet was my room at night if I was in the inpatient setting. How long did I have to wait in the waiting room? Was I was I forgotten? What was the tone of voice of my physician when they, you know, uh, delivered a, a diagnosis that was concerning? All of that falls under that that category. So we track all of those uh, parameters as we. So this sounds like some of that Christian love your neighbor stuff, Greg. Absolutely. I, you know, <laughs> I, I have to say, uh, from my point of view, going out and talking about this, as I would, would try to sell this to our, our physicians and to our leadership and to our employees, it almost turned into a sermon. I would show pictures. And I would even use the words human dignity. I would talk in the end about, you know, the fact that we have to love our patients. And when we failed, we have not loved them enough. Because remember that love is, is not an emotional feeling. And, right. and classically, our Catholic understanding is love means to desire the good of the other. Yes. Mm. And if that patient is in our hospital or in our clinic, then we should desire their good, which means they're cared for compassionately, promptly, that their physical needs are taken care of, that they're not humiliated or embarrassed. That, to me, is love. Uh, and so that it was very easy for me to go out and promote this program because simply we were really talking about how to love patients. Now, there's a phrase <clears throat> that you use in this program, and I think it's, it's very deep, very good, and I'd like you to explain how this came about. The phrase is, they trust you, so you trust them. Right. So there was a great concern about this initially, and you could imagine uh, financial leaders, you could imagine lawyers getting in the room saying, this makes us quite nervous. Uh, what's the particular risk? How much money will we have to return? And I remember thinking, and I got, this is probably where I gave my greatest pushback. The amount of trust that is handed over to the healthcare system or to a particular physician or clinician is unbelievably high. It's profound. So they, you know, after briefly meeting a patient, they will share with you uh, information that they won't share with anybody else. They will allow them to examine your body and potentially even to cut it open and try to cure it of a disease. That is a tremendous amount of trust. How can we then as a health system say to a patient who says, I had a bad experience, uh, we're not, we don't trust you because we think you're just trying to get money back from us. I just think that would be a great uh, hypocrisy and I pushed back on that quite, quite strongly. I remember how our, our CEO, Dr. Feinberg, at the time defined it that made sense to me. He says, if you have a, go to Starbucks and the coffee is cold or doesn't taste right, you take it back to the barista, they don't question you and say, they don't sip the coffee and say, no, we think it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine that happening? <laughs> they would say, no, here's popular. your $2 back. And so... Can you get I coffee for only two dollars at Starbucks? I don't think it's. <laughs> I don't think it's that cheap. Um, so, but but that that concept made a lot of sense to me. Is you don't question you know the veracity or the truthfulness of the patient making the complaint. I'll tell you behind the scenes. Sometimes you might say, "Boy, that seems like a minor issue." But to question that after they've already handed over the amount of trust to the healthcare system to care for them and their illness, as I said, even to, to the point of allowing surgery or pain or chemotherapy. You know, how dare we question them if they report back a bad experience? You know, it's in, yes, I'm, there's I'm, all... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm listening to you talk, and I, I can't help think of anything other than medical students and sort of the medical education and this idea that what we're doing, uh, it's not all about technology. It's not all about electronic medical records and typing data mm -hmm. and collecting data and doing interventions. It really, at the at the end of the day, fundamentally, it's about trust and it's about relationship and and caring. That's why it's called healthcare. You seem to have awakened. You've you've made the old new again, which is really pretty miraculous. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't know if you were prepped for this because this is a little scary. But we brought in. Um, some very smart marketing people a couple of years ago. Not me. I and wasn't they, on they, that. Not you, but they, they interviewed a number of people at our, our, in our system. 
and they came up with the key word that describes what we feel we are about, and the word was caring. Mm. They also came up with the catchphrase for that. It's and this is what it is. It's such an old idea. It seems brand new. Oh, very good. So you actually almost paraphrased yeah. that. Well, and, but it and is, you didn't charge a lot of money for it either, which I'm very happy to say. But, but it's interesting. I'm sure I mean, it wasn't cheap with the consultants. Yeah, Tom and I have lamented with with other guests. I mean, I think all of us who are at a ripe old age like we are in healthcare, we were saddened by how. The human touch and the human interaction of healthcare seems to have deteriorated at the cost of technology and documentation and these things. And listening oh, to you, agree. though, it, it really is hearkening back to really the fundamentals. And, and I tend to think of it as if we think of our job as our vocation, then that relationship looks different, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, there's studies now that suggest that clinicians and physicians who have that sort of vocational sense are more resilient and happier in their practice yes. of medicine. Mm. So yes, January. Recovering that is critical. 2017 mm-hmm. Mayo Clinic Proceedings had an article on that very thing. Greg, I think people are going to want to know, what are the numbers? Okay. Well, you know, it's it depends how one promotes it. If I say it, was a, it cost us a million dollars, some people would say, wow, that's a lot of money you've refunded. I will tell you that it is a small amount in comparison to the revenue of the system, which is the last I heard is between six or seven billion dollars. Billion with a B. Billion with a B. Mm-hmm. So it's an it's not a small number. It's not nothing to just laugh off. But I think, relatively speaking, it shows that 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 fear we had of of huge losses of money going out the door uh, for experiences did not was not realized. And I'm sure we would say, hey, it was actually a pretty good investment um, because if we regained the trust of some of our patients, if we met an ethical imperative, if we've learned something in the process to make care better, it was that million dollars was a good investment. Now, not to sound too much like a hospital administrator, yeah. but, but what are your measures of success? I mean, how are you proving to your board of directors that this money that you're refunding is, is worth it? That's, that question has been asked a number of times. I think it's a little early to say. Mm. I could tell you that we, we tracked the number of complaints. We've recently seen a slight decline. That may be a sign of success. But one thing we track very closely with our board is our patient experience scores. Mm. But we're tracking, as the number one score we use, is, which is very similar to other service industries like hotels, is the, the number, the, the value of would you recommend, uh-huh. that percentage oh. of, of your patients that's used sometimes, as they call it, as a net promoter score. It's used in all sorts of industries, restaurants and hotels as What's the likelihood that when you see a friend or a neighbor, you say, I would go to this institution, I would stay at that hotel? Mm. So we use that, would you recommend this hospital, uh, you know, calculation as our key uh, marker for success in that area. And we have seen a steady um, increase in that 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 number over the last three years. Well, your innovative approach really is remarkable. Now, I mean, as an aside, so your title is Chief Patient Experience Officer. I had a hard time deciding to be an obstetrician gynecologist, but I'll have to admit at no point did I ever say, maybe I should look into being a (laughs) patient experience officer. Uh, Tom and I want to know how you found yourself in that role, and is there a story there? There, I, I hope there's a story. I, I, you know, the, when it was pre- presented to me four years ago, I had never heard the term before, and um, I, uh, I was very curious about it. I later found out I think I was chosen for the position, or it was offered to me, because I had had very high scores in patient experience. Okay. And I had had some administrative tasks in the past and, and some roles, and I, I think they maybe wanted somebody who had some credibility in, in, in the process. But it was very exciting because the term was not well-defined, and I think maybe even now only 25 30% of hospitals have chief patient experience officers. The way I looked at it, though, from a physician's point of view, was very uh, much in tune with my experience about being a doctor because what I looked at it initially as is how well are we doing with professionalism. Mm. Um, and that was the part I focused on. So I have other members of my team that may focus on some of the other issues in terms of hospital process and issues. But when I get out and speak about this, I usually will talk to doctors or nurse practitioners, PAs, any number of other clinical um, specialists. But my key term is always trying to remind them of professionalism, why they're in the profession, how honored they are to have that that title and, 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 and chance to intervene with people in crisis or relieve human suffering, 
and that that's really what patient experience is all about. So I try to make it uh, a professional calling, uh, if you will, in, in, in all of my talks. You may be uh, you may be evangelizing. Be careful. <laughs> I think I am, um, and you can do it in a I think in a secular way that. Uh, it's not stealth because I, I've never met anybody when I've put forth these principles who's ever really disagreed with them. Because it's the way everyone wants to be treated. Absolutely. Greg, Absolutely. we're up at the end of the interview. What final ideas would you like to share with our listeners? I think that um, this whole concept uh, is, I think, will push healthcare in the right direction. We've had one other health system on all these years has, in Wisconsin now that has shown interest and is, is applying this, this principle. I would say as patients or folks in our field to be open to this, uh, not because of the economics, not because of patient loyalty, but because it will push health care to a higher level of expectation, and a level of expectation that is appropriate. It's the right thing to do, uh, and why not love our patients more? Do, do you think – that one of the reasons Geisinger is doing it be, is because of your setting. A lot of people probably don't realize the setting that you are physically located in. Right. I would say initially that would be the impression, but to understand how our system has grown, we now have a hospital in, we have hospitals in urban areas, ah. metropolitan areas, in New Jersey, in small towns. So, and it seems to be across the board that this is a human experience uh, in terms of how they uh, interpret their interaction with healthcare and and what the meaning of the of the, the refund would be. So, yeah, it's sort of unique in that sense that we started in rural Pennsylvania, but we now have you know branches pretty much throughout the state in all different settings, and the message has always been the same. And we haven't found that we get necessarily get more complaints in our urban or more metropolitan areas than we do in our rural settings. Oh. It seems to be a universal similar experience. Great. Maybe that's telling us something. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and love on air with Dr. Doctor. God bless you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, fellows, and God bless. And we'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back to the final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with the answer to the medical trivia question. And the question was about the Hungarian obstetrician Ignaz Semmelweis who was able to reduce mortality from really it was a postpartum infection. Of course, at the time, the cause or even the existence of infection was unknown. That would come 30 or 40 years later. But when he was able to reduce mortality 90%, what did his uh, fellow physicians do where he was working in Vienna? Well, they did not nominate him for the Nobel Prize in Medicine. No. They did not make him chief of obstetrics in Vienna at the tender age of 29 when he came upon this discovery. And they did not start washing hands between patients. They actually, the answer was C, they ridiculed him for saying that it was preposterous that upper-class men like physicians should be thought to have dirty hands that needed washing. And so none of the other obstetricians washed their hands. The incidence of death from childbed fever went back to the 20 to 30 percent it was beforehand, and they basically booted him out of Vienna. The good part is he went back to Hungary where they did believe him, and he did bring down the mortality rate to under 1 percent. But when he wrote to other physicians throughout Europe, even the famous Rudolf Virchow said he was crazy, they didn't believe him, and finally it just got to him, something snapped after a while, and a friend lured him into an insane asylum. They threw him in there where he died two weeks later from an infection that he got. Oh, my word. So, but now he is universally revered in the medical world. So now you know the rest of the story. Once again, Tom, thank you for presenting trivia that's not <laughs> trivial. Because it's saving many patients' lives nowadays. I mean, how many people die of postpartum infections now? Absolutely. Tom, we're going to move on to an area that we don't always get to do, but uh, we're going to try to spend a little bit of time on this show, and that is some questions and comments that we've had from listeners. We love to get uh, questions from you via email on our Facebook page or on the Redeemer Radio website. We love to get questions. And Tom, one of our shows where we had a weight loss expert talking about weight loss myths got us a couple of really good questions. I don't know about you, but they really got me thinking. Oh, and yes. so I thought we should bring up some of the questions that we got and sort of talk about them maybe 
uh, in a little bit of detail. One of them was we were, we were criticized somewhat for promoting a certain kind of weight loss instead of everyday nutrition. And I really don't think that was our goal, was it? No. You know, when we put together a show, we come up with a topic. We try to find a, a person who's going to talk from a, a Catholic perspective, even if they're not Catholic themselves. And we don't know what answers we're going to get. We do not script the show that way. And we wanted to talk about somebody who was an expert with somebody who was an expert in obesity, and we found him through the Catholic Medical Association. And we did not know that it was going to take the direction of a heavy emphasis on the low-carb diet. So this was no way in the plans, but we followed our guest where his story leads. And that's one thing we've been taught to do is follow the guest's story. In fact, I learned that from uh, Dr. Oz when I was in uh, in the Vatican back in April. I got to ask him one question. And that was one of the things he gave in his answer to the question. So let them tell their story. And the story for Dr. Usher is that he deals with people who need to lose significant amounts of weight. And he has found that the low-carb diet works reliably well for his population. We are not recommending a low-carb diet carte blanche for everybody out there. So let me make that clear. You know, and having said that, one of the things that a few of our guests in the weight loss area have pointed out was that 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 food pyramid that was produced in the 50s and 60s that had really a high-carbohydrate diet has produced an epidemic of diabetes. And heart disease. To say that is not to say that we think everyone should be eating a low-carb diet. But it is true that many, many Americans eat many, many, too many carbohydrates. Especially unrefined sugar. Or refined sugar. Uh, Furthermore, it was pointed out in one of the questions from listeners, we are not recommending that diet necessarily for children, although I think we all know of examples of children consuming far too many processed sugars uh, and carbohydrates. Uh, And we were advocating, I think, if we were advocating anything, a balanced diet with reduced refined sugars. I think that's what our cardiology expert and our obesity expert said as well. And we would like to interview somebody who's an expert on nutrition, but that is such a fuzzy area. And I've always thought this, even since medical school, I've never been able to pin down what what is good nutrition? It's an ever-changing target. But we do love hearing from our listeners, and so please go to the Redeemer Radio website, get our podcast so you can listen to our shows anytime you like, and send us your questions because we change our shows, we change our guests based on the feedback that we get from you, the listeners. So we appreciate your listening, and we really appreciate your questions. On another topic, we would like the Dr. Doctor Show to reach an ever larger audience. There's a couple ways you can help with that if you like the show. Uh, one of them is simply going to the iTunes podcast site. iTunes has an area where you can leave reviews. And the more reviews that are left there, the more likely uh, the show will come up when people search. So if you like the show and would leave a a review for us. We greatly appreciate that. The other way you can do it is if you are listening in an area outside of where we tape in northeast and north central Indiana, uh, we would appreciate your help getting the show on your station. It, it won't cost your Catholic station anything. What we'd recommend doing is having your local Catholic radio uh, station's executive director listen to the show. Uh, Maybe you can get a few friends together who like the show and ask them if they would listen to it and see if it's something that they would like to air uh, locally for where you are. And then if you would just contact Redeemer Radio here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, our executive director, Cindy Black, will tell you how you could get that radio show free. In fact, I recently spoke to some pre-med students out at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, and uh, offered them a chance to be on the show and and, uh, uh, a free meal if they can um, (laughs) actually achieve getting it on a local station where they are. And uh, several of them are taking up the challenge. So we look forward to having interviews with enterprising pre-med or medical students in the future. And we look forward to providing those free meals for medical students because we remember those days and a free meal goes a long way. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and you can probably box it up, take it home, have it for breakfast the next day or midnight snack or, or whatever. One other event we'd like to make listeners aware of, because we hope this becomes a national thing, but uh, for our second time, we're going to host a conference at Marion University Medical School in Indianapolis uh, the evening of Friday, March 22nd, and during the day, March 23rd, uh, called MedCon 
2019. And the goal of this conference, which this year is entitled The Authentic Joy of Medicine, is try to give pre-med students, medical students, physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals an idea of what is it that really brings joy uh, to the life of those who practice and benefit from medical care. Uh, Tom, listeners can check out their website. It's uh, www.medcon2019.splashthat.com. Yes, and you'll see uh, the lineup. We are confirming different people almost uh, daily for this, but we're going to have opportunities for mentoring dinners, mentoring receptions, so that students can talk with physicians who they think they want to become like. There are also going to be sessions on false joy in medicine or addictions, uh, joy among caregivers and family members of patients, uh, joy in achieving social justice. We even have a physician who takes care of death row inmates, and how to achieve, uh, achieve joy in medicine for students and physicians. We'll probably have more about this on the show, but we've gotten a generous grant from our Sunday Visitor Institute so that the first 200 students who register can come free. So that's MedCon 2019, Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's March 22nd, March 23rd, 2019. Check out that website. So thanks for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org, C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We'll be signing off until next week. Remember, your medical decisions can have profound consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll hear from neurologist Dr. Tom Zabiega about palliative care practices and what patients and families need to know about end-of-life care. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app.